Good morning and welcome to episode 59 of the Quickie Podcast. Thanks for being here today. I got a heavy hitter on the show today. My guest is Jonathan Strebley. Jonathan is an advocate for design and has been so for decades. His advocacy work has been recognized on an international stage through the International Council of Design, who he is currently a president-elect for. He's also the design director at an architecture and design community design firm in Vancouver, British Columbia called HCMA. He's also a former president of the GDC in British Columbia. He also is formerly the founder of an agency called the Notice Group, which is brand strategy and communication. Jonathan has lived and breathed design for decades now. He says it himself. And through his early beginnings in a very diverse neighborhood in East Vancouver to his punk years where he had a mohawk and he lived that punk lifestyle, all of those shaped his worldview and the importance of design and what it all means. In this episode, we also talk about mentors and the importance of mentors, both mentoring up and having a mentor to teach you, but mentoring down and giving back to the people who are coming up. That old saying, send the elevator back down for the next group, right? Guys, there's something in this episode for everybody. I love talking with Jonathan and his passion for design and the design community really comes through. You can hear it right away. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Strebley. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Dave. Thanks for joining me on the show today. I assure you it's my pleasure. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm going to get right to it. So briefly tell the listeners about yourself. Well, my name is Jonathan Strebley. I'm a a practicing creative professional. Uh, I've been involved with the uh, creative industry in Vancouver for a number of decades. So I'll leave the total amount uh, a little (laughs) shy there. And uh, currently able to practice what I preach in the uh, the wonderful uh, environment of HCMA architecture and design as a a director of creative services. Mm -hmm. And continuing my uh, community efforts and outreach through um, organizations like CAPIC and GDC and, and Creative Mornings and now have been able to uh, launch that further into, into the international uh, community of design with the International Council of Design as currently their president-elect. Wow. And previous to, I mean, you've always been a design advocate, but previous to HCMA, mm-hmm. you also ran your own creative agency. Is that right? Correct. It was a brand strategy and communications agency and a a smaller firm. We were focused on uh, a lot of hospitality and uh, smaller um, to medium businesses, uh, but also ventured into some uh, unexpected territory where actually my firm actually branded Mr. John Horgan when he was running to be the provincial leader for the NDP of BC. And then we ended up rebranding the BC NDP as a party uh, for the election. Nice. 
Yeah, that was a, a wonderful project to work on to at the time, which was uh, an aligned uh, methodology and thinking. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to then, in your words here, how I know there's plenty of crossovers and intersections between architecture and design and boiling mm-hmm. it down to graphic design. Mm-hmm. How does HCMA use design and your role with the company? Well, my role is to uh, look at what we can do to almost bring back the creative studio to its original form. You know, you don't have to go too far back into the pre-industrial revolution of of design awareness and and practice to see firms that did it all, whether it was Mm -hmm. architecture, exhibition, graphic, etc., or printing or publishing. It was all one place of creatives. We've created silos and and we've created differentiation and, and consultancies along the way. Um, HCMA has done a wonderful job of imagining itself to be more participatory and collaborative and relationship-based with uh, design practices and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, genres. And so my role is to uh, contribute on the communication design side. So as Director of Creative Services, I'm looking at extending that, that design language to communication, exhibition, environmental. Uh, we also work with uh, industrial and landscape and interior. And so, uh, we have a, a number of, of wonderful opportunities of design practice and prowess with this incredible family here uh, and of international um, creatives that are looking at asking the question of what's possible mm-hmm. in, in a very new light. And uh, it's been a thrill. So you get the opportunity to flex the creative muscles in a number of different directions, endless amounts of direction. I'd also add to that and say that, you know, design is a lifelong learning um, career trajectory. And mm-hmm. so when you're, when you're able to both mentor and learn and to extend that learning to the, the general public and, and, the, and your clients and see uh, a smile increase, even though you can't actually technically measure the efficacy and the profit of a smile, yeah. when, you, when you see a community uh, uh, liven up, and when you see programming increase in a space, when, when you see communication design extend the, uh, the language of what, and the message of what they're trying to share and say, uh, it's, it's extremely fulfilling and rewarding. And going back to my earlier comment that, you know, I do what I do so I can better uh, benefit my community and my family. And so by benefiting other communities and families, you're, you're, we continue to do that. <laughs> Very well said. Previously, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, you'd been involved in the local design community for decades. And I want to go a little bit further back uh, in that. And I want to ask you about your childhood. And Mm. do you feel that you had a creative childhood? And what made it that way? Absolutely. Uh, Hindsight is a wonderful, wonderful journey, isn't Mm -hmm. it? (laughs) When you're able to go back and see. Uh, I was blessed to grow up in in, uh, an incredible community in East Vancouver. And and where I grew up, every house was a different nationality or language. And so by the very nature of going out each day and playing in the alley, you were constantly exposed to everything all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that, that was normal. And I think where... I discovered creativity was when that became restricted or, or not as readily available and where okay. it suddenly became more siloed or homogenized. And, uh, and also my family is very supportive of, of any uh, trajectory for a career path. 
uh, ultimately coming from East Vancouver with uh, a single mom and four kids, get a job was just a, what you wanted to accomplish. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> the, the fact that I was able to wind that into uh, community outreach and design and also photography was uh, a, a huge benefit to the people that I was um, uh, meeting up with. I mean, my life was wrapped around music and fashion and contributing in, in photography and design at that time was able to uh, live a, uh, a very entertaining and, um, uh, let's just say adventurous lifestyle for a little while. <laughs> adventurous lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> and in that you, you meet, uh, uh, an incredibly diverse population of creatives and mm-hmm. creatives. And so being exposed to music, to fashion, to design, to photography, to, um, interior design, to, uh, jewelry design, multiple layers and levels of people that were challenging the status quo, especially with the rebellious punk and underground and alternative scene that I was involved mm. in, is is a wonderful way to expose yourself to um, uh, an alternative way of seeing and thinking, for one. Yep. But to answer your question, uh, I wrap it back into, I was always given the uh, the opportunity to always ask why. And why not? Mm-hmm. So I didn't start with a restriction. I was actually first introduced to opportunity and, and asking what's possible. So to continue that today is, is fantastic. Okay. Now, earlier in that answer, you had mentioned you first started seeing, you know, you didn't really know it was a creative childhood. You started seeing mm-hmm. that when you saw more restrictions and more silo coming into that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious then to see what what you really started seeing when you started noticing design and creative out in the world? Well, for me, it's about visual messaging. And like, mm-hmm. I know I'm a visual thinker. I know that I respond better to visuals than a 200 page report on anything. And yeah. I know I will, I'll constantly seek a, a faster way to get to the gist of the, the message or the service or the point. Mm-hmm. And so when you start to see effective use of that, when you start to see the power of imagery, which causes you to pause and ask a question, and even if it's a a quote-unquote infographic, and if I'm going to go back to a almost graffiti-style infographic, I'll go back to uh, um, local punk legends DOA, and one of the greatest pieces of copy and, and minor design piece I'll ever acknowledge is the talk minus action equals zero. And it was just this complete formula to say whatever you need to say, but if you're not backing it up with actions and doing, then it's moot. And so I've actually evolved that into one of the many design tenets I carry with me today, and that is that criticism without contribution is moot. You can critique all you want, but if you're not offering salable positions of of, um, solution or potential solution or furthering the the education of it, Mm -hmm. then, you know, wine away but what's what benefit does that actually bring the environment all right so we've kind of danced around it just a little bit now and Mm. i I know little bits um but i want to hear it from you how does or where does creativity really express itself through that punk rock world that you were a part of for a while Mm. well first of all it's it's a visual pause yes like yeah you've you've got um I think with a lot of us in the very earliest stages of our creative and, and especially in design careers, we're, we're locked on the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're hungry for the pretty or the beautiful or the adventurous or the uh, uh, provocative or, or the um, uh, 
uh, attention getting because mm-hmm. uh, we feel it's necessary. But then you realize that there's a subtlety in messaging that can be just as powerful, if not more powerful, by sometimes maybe just a pause. You know, that little bit that just has you, you, you change the cadence of something and you remove the expectation you've introduced an opportunity. And so to answer your question about how that environment provided uh, a vehicle of expression is that there were very few rules. And even yes. though there were rules, you know, and uh, there was a brilliant photo essay done by a photographer whose name escapes me at the moment. But what he did was he collected a whole bunch of skinheads a whole bunch of punks, a whole bunch of, of teddy boys, of, of mods, of, of gangbangers, and of um, hip-hop uh, fans, mm-hmm. and, and photographed them as individuals. But once you saw all of that clique in one grid, you realized that they all looked the same. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so when, for me, going back to the comparison of, of a childhood, of growing up in a very international community, uh, the same thing was expressed with the early days of, of punk and alternative and, and, and the gay scene, because it was all one scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone was going to the same bars, the same places, and so there was this constant awareness of so much more than who you were. And you defined yourself in your own way. That mm-hmm. was fun. Identity was a big thing in youth culture and still is and should be. And and so defining yourself or redefining yourself by being exposed to what you weren't previously aware of mm-hmm. allowed you to then both explore and challenge. And that, to me, are two of the most uh, creative tools or process uh, um, pieces that there is in creativity, and that is to explore and to challenge. What a fascinating perspective on that, where you take the individual photos, but once you've you know, collaged them all together, it's the same thing. You know, you have your individualism, but the 30,000 foot view is, it's all the same. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think Seth Godin spoke to that in regards to tribes. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you find your people, you find your tribes. And for myself, you know, I, to this day, like if anybody ever sat with me in a meeting uh, uh, and asked for my phone, what they're going to see on this home screen is a picture of me when I was 17 with a mohawk with the word <laughs> social social menace written underneath me in Yaletown before Yaletown even existed. It was warehouses of, of uh, CD bars and, and CD activities. Mm-hmm. But it, it, but it, to me, it was nirvana. It was heaven. It was a place where you could, you could be yourself. And so uh, the mohawk's gone, like long gone, mm-hmm. like the my hair hit the recession a long time ago. And, <laughs> but back to your earlier question about how did that influence creativity is that what it provided me was the, um, over the years, the understanding that you can provoke and you can have someone pause and get their attention. The question is, what are you going to do with it afterwards? How are yes. you going to make that meaningful? And so I now know that having a mohawk, a leather jacket, and and a placard that says, you know, down with society, or, is, or anarchy now, is a pause. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and, and I didn't have the tools at the time to follow through with that connection to say, well, what's next and what does that mean and how can we benefit uh, the greater community overall moving forward? Because ideologically it was there, but in practicality it wasn't. So you get the attention, but what do you do with it now? Exactly. Got it. So for me, what was uh, uh, very, um, was a major transition for me from then to now is that is realizing that the only way to change the system is to get right inside of it Mm 
and start and start messing with it from within. <laughs> and, and so, the the employment and career and and the uh, the places that I've been able to embed myself into were places of influence. So whether that be in education, whether that be in design agency, whether that be through advocacy and, and organizational contribution or advisory committees is to say the same things, which are to explore and to challenge, but to do so in a way which is uh, respecting the environment and the language that you need to speak in to get people listening mm -hmm. and to activate people to contribute positively to what might be next and to what might be possible. Okay, so hearing that then is a perfect transition to this next question, and I'm really interested to hear your answer here. What has been the most influential design of your life so far then, do you think? Hmm. This will be a great piece to edit out the silence of me thinking. Nope, I leave thinking pauses. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I, I hear the word design in that question in two different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, one could be project based, and one could be um, the influence of design and that yes. messaging of design. So. Mm -hmm. For and me, I've, had, I've had guests take it in either direction. Yeah, yeah, and and they're part and parcel, of course, because you know once you consider design as a vehicle of change, then it can influence many along the way. So to answer your question directly, I, I think the the pivotal piece for me was an accidental one, and that's when I contributed an op-ed piece to uh, the National Observer about uh, commenting on police car design and yeah. how aggressive those designs were were becoming and very i'll use the word americanized mm -hmm. and then learning and realizing that uh you know canadian cities uh the decision making process for what uh, police vehicles looked like was actually just an operational procedure and was just a, a checkbox on a list they got from the major car manufacturers that gave the wow. choices of black dark gray or medium gray and then, of course, any kind of design you would add to that would then increase costs. So yep. everyone's trying to shave numbers. So they went with what was readily available mm -hmm. and some of the things that are offloaded from American companies. So uh, bringing that to light was an interesting, um, uh, interesting uh, exercise in that I was applauded by many, but also uh, attacked by some. And I'll share two of those very quickly. And one was... I was attacked online by Facebook saying, oh, aren't you a poor boy? You're too scared to go out and you're scared of the police and, and uh, uh, the, the big dark cop cars. You're, 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 there was some language added to it, which I'll leave out of this mm -hmm. particular piece. Yeah. But, so, you know, uh, it's the Internet, so it doesn't take too long to search this guy's name and find out where he sits. And it turns out that he's a, um, a city worker, a middle-aged Caucasian with uh, two beautiful children and a wife who lives in one of the safest communities in New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, if I knew that and that was my life, I would imagine that there's absolutely nothing to be concerned about. Yes, and that same day, I received an email from uh, an octogenarian, a uh, Canadian gent who just happened to be on holiday in Europe and was reading uh, the article online. And he wrote to me saying, you know, when I was a kid, I was raised to say, when you're in trouble, go look for a police car. Mm -hmm. look, go look for the police officer. They're in your community. They're walking. They're there. They're smiling and they're helpful. And they were. And, and many still are. Many still are. Definitely. And... But he said, you know, now I'm in my 80s and I have to be very careful. And when I see police cars today, I'm actually scared. And I've taken for granted that advice I got so long ago, which to me no longer is valid or exists. 
And that was just crushing when we mm-hmm. think about families and our communities. You know, you or I, we have very little to be concerned about compared to much of all our vulnerable communities and, and those at risk. Yeah. And, and, and we can't design for us. We must design for everyone. And so that experience was, was humbling and was, was uh, heartfelt and emotional. And I swore that anything I did in design moving forward must consider the repercussions and also make sure that it's inclusive and as accessible as possible. It's never perfect, but you can strive to be better at every, at every stage of the design process. You know, the other thing that that points out, too, is your individual worldview, you know, where you are at, whether you're in a rural safe town in New Brunswick or if you grow up and lived in the roughest spot in Harlem, or for example, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have a different perspective of a design or of a community staple or something like that you mm-hmm. know, than everybody else. So as a designer, it really puts a, a tough spot trying to, trying to find something, I guess the word would be inclusive. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually, I uh, think overuse the word inclusive, mm-hmm. accessible and, and um, respectful even, you know, as, uh, I, I'm in a very privileged position, regardless of my personal upbringing and environment, which is irrelevant. I'm in a very privileged position. I'm a white, middle-aged, cisgendered male, and and you know I, I check a lot of boxes for privilege. Mm-hmm. And to be in that position, my obligation is to ensure that I remember my childhood and all the voices and the individuals that I grew up with that must be represented as efficiently and as quickly and as inclusively as possible. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm given an opportunity to have a, a platform in which to speak from, then the first thing I need to do is to find someone who to better represent a wider audience and to get out of their way and put them in that position. Yes. And so that, that's what's led me through many decisions about where I've attended on various boards and organizations is to get in there, make impact, raise a concern, and then find the people that are best suited for it, that are better to represent the, the community at large and get out of their way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... The next few questions I have here kind of touch on some lessons that you may have learned in your creative career so far, Um, some of the challenges that you've been through and what you've learned going through those. And I really want to share that with the listeners. But um, after that, I promise to turn it around and we'll end on a high note here. Um, What has been the most challenging time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through it? Well, I think anytime you're in a position where you're not able to meet the expectations of a client, you know, whether, whether they're valid or not is, is irrelevant. We, mm-hmm. we, we want to please, you know, we, we want to, we want the win. Um, we want the, uh, we want everyone smiling and laughing and high-fiving and, and getting massive checks at, at the end of every project. Yeah. Everybody wants to see that. And that's not always possible, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there are some very difficult conversations that have to happen at certain points. Um, the example I'm going to share is actually is a, is a tough one. It's not one that I like to bring up, but I, I, I think I'm past the protection part of that. And that is, is that, you know, uh, uh, early on, I was working with my team and we had a particular client that was um, uh, going through some changes and some difficulties and, and it led to some miscommunications that resulted in some uh, uh, presentations that didn't go as well as they should have. Uh, Actually, the presentation has been great. They just responded to it in a very different light. It seemed like the rules had changed along the way. But the, the client had chosen to not 
consider how we could adapt it, but they chose to invite my whole team to their office to publicly fire me and the team in front of, uh, so me speaking to me that down to me about how it's my fault that the whole team is now suffering and saying, I don't blame the team. I blame him, that director for, for doing this along the way. It was, uh, a very, uh, unsettling situation to be in. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, I'm not surprised. Uh, it was a difficult client with different, difficult circumstances. And uh, you sure have a whole new criteria before you say yes to a project moving forward after that. But uh, Definitely. the one thing that, that I really appreciated was the, uh, and, I, and I was very calm the whole time. And, mm-hmm. and I asked, is there an opportunity for us to address this? And what were the actual items of concern? So we could have those on the record. And... Uh, Opportunities for trying to find a, um, uh, a semblance of, of negotiation to, to see it through or in some way was, was just rejected at, at, every, at every point. And so we uh, agreed to disagree and, and went on our, our separate ways. But, mm-hmm. So I took the whole team for breakfast afterwards. You know, it, was, it was early in the morning. and uh, we sat the day. Oh, yeah, absolutely, with a healthy breakfast. And so we all sat down. And what I was absolutely in awe of was just how supportive the whole team was. Mm-hmm. They just said, you handled that so well. He has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, he missed so many important points. Uh, we can be very proud of the work we've done. And so should you, you know, and so, and it wasn't, and it was their work. It was our work. Like we were all in it together. And, but I was willing to take everything at that point to ensure that they knew that it wasn't anything to do with them. You know, mm-hmm. that, that was my business and, and my client. Uh, but they uh, bonded and and uh, collaborated, and we became uh, even tighter as a group and a force and a team. And so it was a very difficult situation to go through, and I don't suggest anybody use it as a way of professional development. But I <laughs> For would sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I certainly, it certainly is a great way to have your team show their uh, uh, their metal. You know, and show what they stand for, and realize that it's through difficulty that you're able to provide some of the best uh, unions possible to proceed with it in a creative fashion. Mm-hmm. Oh, Jonathan, I feel for you through this one. You know, but I, I pull two things from that story. One is great leadership, and mm-hmm. two would be, you know, maybe not losing. Losing maybe isn't the right word, but losing with grace. Oh, certainly. You know, and and. Uh, you know, there's times where you need to let a client go as well, you yeah. know, and so there's a little reminder, like you can have the best of intentions early in the game and, and, and sometimes the rules change or, or people change. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turned out in this particular case, there were a number of extenuating circumstances that we learned about later that, that started to help explain the, uh, the very quick transition. So, yeah. uh, but like I said, you know, all of that is moot because it was already, the damage was done and, and, uh, and so was the, the benefit of, of how the team galvanized. So definitely a challenging time in the career, but uh, almost like a rise from the rise from the moment type type event. Absolutely, and, and to be honest, like in your heart, it, it sinks at that point because you feel like you let everybody down. You know, yep. your, the client, your team, and then by the very nature and extension of that, yourself. And uh, so you you don't think you're going to repair quickly, but but actually, it was a, a, a very short blip in in how we were able to proceed and move on. Mm-hmm. 
So the next question I have is more of a specific designer project that you did go through that you executed on, but it didn't go as well as hoped or didn't bring the desired result. Um, can you take us to, mm. that, to a story like that? I don't know if there's one in particular, but um, I mean, I'm, I'm really proud of the work we've done, but I would, I would challenge any designer to say that if they could go back on any project, would they change it a little bit? And yes. somebody, somebody's saying no, right? Yeah, the, the projects end because of budget, timeline, and certain decisions. Yes. Uh, I, I think we're all good at, at dragging things out because we just enjoy the process of, of exploring and challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I would suggest that not one in particular, but a couple times it's happened where a a project we feel reached its peak potential and then was dialed back. And uh, sometimes you just get the whether it's a, a an executive board decision or a certain. Uh, I mean, most clients say we want to be different. Uh, we want to challenge the norm, and we want to we want to exercise our right to be uh, uh, provocative and, and, and new and expressive. And, and when you actually show that type of work, then mm-hmm. there's this whole, whoa, well, we didn't quite imagine it to be that expressive or that provocative <laughs> or that, that challenging yes. or that exploratory. And so I think that's, that's part and parcel of ensuring that you know you've got a range to work in and knowing mm-hmm. when you can dial it in. So I wouldn't say it was a, a those are negative experiences. I think they're cautionary tales and just how far that you um, uh, stretch the scope out or stretch the possibilities out without checking in regularly. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole idea of like showing early and often is where you really start to uh, get a gauge as to where you are with your client and where the client is with you. Mm-hmm. I love including a client so often along the way that they get to a certain point. It's like, look, I trust you now. Just leave me alone. <laughs> just, just go. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, get me out of it. Do your thing. My goodness. Exactly. <laughs> Gotcha. Uh, the last question on the sort of uh, the dark side, if you will, of things is what is something that you're struggling with in your design and creative career right now? My design and creative career um, transitioned from very tactile and hands-on to uh, direction and management and then very strategic along the way in there as well. So talking Mm -hmm. about design practice versus design strategy and dare I use the words design thinking in there in some way is that there's a number of audience that I need to be able to constantly remind the value of design and design decisions and design process and that design is more than a logo on a piece of paper. Mm And that it's a it's a it's a systematic approach. It's a strategic approach. And without strategy, most visual designs can fail. Yes. And so I think the biggest challenge I have right now is two parts. One is missing some of the tactile connection to making. I I, I do I do contend with that every now and again, and I do see my design team or our designers working and being a little envious of some of the things they can tuck into and dive into and. And almost like I feel like I've forgotten more things about uh, various applications I've worked in than than remembered. But the biggest challenge is to spend some time with a sketchbook and to remind yourself about process yes. and about uh, about um, iteration mm-hmm. and and ensuring that exploration is done to the point of uh, almost exhaustion. You know where. Your, your idea you get at the midnight before the deadline is not your best idea. It just happens to be the best one you got with the time that's remaining. Yes. And, and 
it, the only way to prove it's your best idea is to challenge it with other iterations and other ideas. So that's a challenge I have with, with being able to have some time to devote to that. And the other challenge is um, an ongoing one, and uh, it's something that affects whether you're junior or senior, and that is finding uh, a mentorship relationship, which is both uh, learning and teaching. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I used to seek a mentor one a year that of someone that I admired that was in a position that I aspired to be in. And, and, I, and I suggest that. I recommend that. I think it's an excellent trajectory and, and way of learning to go forward for anyone. Mm-hmm. I now seek um, two mentors a year and and those relationships can change whether it's uh, you know once every three months or or once every two weeks and and I try to find one that is very left brain and one that's very right brain and to use those very different perspectives from mine which seems to sit in the middle of the road occasionally and to have alternative perspectives from well, let's say whether it's a fine artist or a choreographer or a musician or from a CEO of a tech firm or a CFO and, and someone that just you can share a certain scenario with mm-hmm. and they'll ask specific questions and provide particular perspectives that I wouldn't have based upon my experience because they're, they're very different perspectives which you rightfully pointed out very early on in this conversation. So the challenge there is to ensure that you're able to find those individuals and balance it to make sure that you're also sharing. Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. If, if you want to know the value of having a mentor is to be a mentor first. Yes. And, and no matter how little or how much you know, you have something to share and to deny sharing it is being selfish. And we are not a selfish community. The design community is an open book of sharing, of challenging, exploration, and of peer support. You know, I can feel the immediate hurdle to somebody listening. This would be that almost that imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. You're like, me? I have something to share? Come on. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. So, and, and, and rightfully said, you know, uh-huh. um, what I, I do a number of talks to, to um, educational institutions and, and I bring up the idea of mentoring. So when, I mm-hmm. speak, when I'm speaking to a group and, and you know, like I said, I've been very fortunate to have had a, um, a, a fun life in creativity. And, mm-hmm. and in some ways it could be an enviable uh, position I, uh, that I find myself in. And so when I ask the question, how many of you would like me to be your mentor? You know, it's pretty rare when there aren't every hand up in the air. <laughs> because, you know, because, and now the next question I ask is, well, how many of you are mentoring somebody right now? And it's very often where there's no hands in the air. Yeah. And I said, and said, so, so I'll point to somebody. I said, like you, like why aren't you mentoring somebody? So, well, I'm only a first year. And I said, okay, well, what term are you in? I'm in third term. I said, okay, do you remember first term? I said, yeah. Don't you think that you have something from third term you can share with a first term that would benefit them? That you, the thing you wish you knew then that you know now. Mm-hmm. And and why aren't you sharing that? And I and I kind of said, like, how dare you? <laughs> you, you, you could have made someone like you in that same position of week one uh, that you could have given that one little bit of advice that would help them get further ahead and could potentially be an ally, a colleague, or even your boss one day. Yep. And so you're right, is that people don't feel they have the right to to share what they know. Yes. But um, if you think you know something, try teaching it, I believe is the, the adage we've heard. And, and as soon as you need to share something in, in different ways of learning, mm-hmm. uh, you really start to understand what it is that you know and what it is that you believe in and what's important to you. And to not be able to express that. You can think that. You might think you've got 
all the answers and the tenets that you have. And until you're able to teach somebody what those are, you haven't really tested what that sounds like. And you, and you haven't really sold yourself on it, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the mentorship, that's just fantastic advice. So I'm definitely going to make sure that uh, I myself start trying to put that into practice more. Um, I want to ask a question now about a project that you've been a part of that you're the most proud of, one that mm-hmm. just makes your heart sing or maybe the biggest design feather in your cap. Tell us about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a tough one for me because uh, I, I've always said that my favorite project is the next one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, and I'm very process driven and I really enjoy that process. But yep. um, it's a tough one because I dance between uh, going back a ways where I was working a lot in hospitality and working with chef owners that put mm-hmm. their, their lifeblood and the, the 23 hour shifts and all their personal money into their business and being able to work with an individual like that that trusts you to help them see their vision through and to get somewhere is, is an experience that is really hard to replicate in, in larger uh, scales of, of economy and project size. Mm-hmm. So there's a few examples I can give in that, and, and, but I'd probably be making the more personal stories. So I'll, I'll actually go back to the, the one that I'm really proud of is, is the, the work we did with the, the BCNDP, mm-hmm. you know, because it was a surprise to me. Uh, in that we had given the, we were given the opportunity to essentially kind of brand a person, you know? And so the whole idea (laughs) was, was that John Horgan wasn't party leader yet. And, uh, there was an opportunity for him to elevate his, his awareness and perception of himself to, to the party. And so the decision to just go all out on, on, platform of vision of messaging and to make it as exciting as some of the language he was bringing into it and being able to visualize that was, was quite exciting why i feel that it's something that i'm proud of is that it, it actually kept evolving and kept growing and kept shifting so a lot of the language you brought in earlier of, of working with a great team uh from the director on down with the team at, at the bcndp offices mm-hmm. was that they understood that communications was a um, a vehicle and an outlet which needs to constantly be almost liquid in nature and so when uh, John Horgan became the, the party leader and the election was coming of the provincial election and, and wanting to revamp the, uh, the BC NDP logo for the election campaign and all the materials moving forward mm-hmm. is that we had an opportunity to take that same enthusiasm and energy and language and now with uh, incredible um, statistics and reporting and survey and public input. And so I got to read the stories of those who were directly affected by their decisions and and so being able to be privy to uh, people's voices that are affected by design and what could potentially be the power of design mm-hmm. was uh, really really uh, motivating and um, exhilarating, and it brought back the very nature of reminding myself that I got into design because I want to positively affect my community and more directly through my family, and I want my 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 grandparents and my my nieces and nephews to have the same 
uh, benefit of design that I feel that we all deserve and to do the best I can because that's the piece to the community that I'm directly affecting and connected to. And so to be able to extend that into other people's voices and to hear their voices and to hear their feedback and how they're responding was a wonderful, wonderful exercise. Now, the fact that they won the election, just just a bonus on top of that. <laughs> for but sure. The, but the, and I certainly don't credit the design for that, uh, at least not 100%. I but <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a part of what people will remember and see and was definitely part of the messaging. But uh, I was really proud of, of being able to positively affect and give voice to some that didn't have a voice and mm-hmm. was proud to be able to be privy to a lot of um, uh, stakeholder engagement and public engagement that I wouldn't normally have had access to at that time. That's a really unique one that literally is built on a platform and that's up on a platform. That's a really good one. Thank you for sharing that, Jonathan. My so, pleasure. So this is the time of the show with the ask it forward question just at the end here. I have a question from my previous guest that I will ask you, and then I'm going to ask you for a question to ask the next one. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but you can ask them anything you want. So my previous guest was Matt Dawson. He is also the founder of uh, CropCon, or the Crop Conference, Mm -hmm. Um, and he wanted to ask the next guest, what would make you give up design or your creative career? What what could possibly come up that would force you to give that up? Wow, that's a that's a great question. Uh, that's <laughs> that, that that's that's not one I would ever ask myself because you know as I get older, people start banding about the word retirement. I keep thinking, what the hell is that? Why would I stop doing what I love to do? For sure. What would it take to give up creative design? This might be a dark answer, but I would suggest that if my family needed me. Yep. Honestly, when I was thinking about, you know, what somebody could answer to this, knowing that you were the one I was going to ask this question and the passion you have for you, what you do, I, that's kind of where I went. Whereas like, this is really the only thing that he could say. I, I can't imagine not doing what I do unless the priorities that we have in life superseded that. And the prior- priority in life for me has always been family first. 100%. Great answer, Jonathan. Um, what question would you like me to ask the next guest? Well, based on that uh, loaded <laughs> question, um, my question forward would be to any creative is what's stopping you from being twice as good as you are right now? Wow. Man, you guys have way better questions than I do. <laughs> I just got to make a show with yeah. <laughs> make a show with just all of these questions. That's it. Just all of the ask it forwards. That's great. Jonathan, I'm going to ask the next guest that question. And just to finish up here, I don't have time for a full 10 question lightning round, but there's two that I love to ask and I want to hear right. your quick answers to them. Okay. Question number one, on a scale of one to 10, how good are you at bowling? Eight. Holy cow. I didn't expect that answer. <laughs> and, and, and I haven't bowled since I was 17, so I remember being phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> I almost feel like that's a challenge, Jonathan. Bring it on, Dave. <laughs> and the last question I have for you is, you have to start over in your design career. Everything you have ever done has been erased from history except for one project. What is it and why? 
punk gig posters by hand. Beautiful. That's a fantastic yeah. way to end. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today on the podcast. Dave, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for doing this. Awesome having you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Quickie Podcast today. I really appreciate it. Great stories from Jonathan. I really appreciate his time. Thank you again, Jonathan. And if you want to hear the next guest answer Jonathan's Ask It Forward question, tune in tomorrow morning because I'll be back. See you tomorrow.